Well, good morning, First Family. If you liked that, you will love what they are doing tonight. You will want to be here, and you'll want to be a part of what God is doing. We welcome you today. We thank you for being a part of what God is doing today, and we thank God for the privilege of being together. This is a great gift God has given us. It is one that, that we recognize today with humility, not because it's a rare opportunity, although that's true too, but because God has given us a gracious gift in being a family under God's leadership and under his love. Today, I want to ask you one question, and it's one that I'll come back to over and over and over again. Where are you in God's family relationship? Do you have a relationship with God, or are you just an interested bystander? Do you have a connection that is living and breathing, or do you have one that is functional only on Sunday? You see, the, the portion that we're going to get to today in Revelation 7 talks about some of the things that we can look forward to if we're in the family of God, but it's also a reminder of what waits those who are not. I want to remind you of something we said weeks, even months ago now. There are two aspects to Revelation that we anchor ourselves to. One is, who is what, what God is saying through Revelation is what waits for God's people. And the other is a warning for those who are not God's people. I want to make sure that we pay attention to both of those. Can I tell you today, my friends, can I tell you today, the passage that our friend Craig read just a moment ago is one that rings both of those bells. Let's just start here, shall we? We're back in the throne room of heaven. And in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we see a broader picture than what we saw last week. Last week, we only saw the 144,000. That's all we saw. This week, the camera angle widens. And it widens out so that we can see a great multitude gathered around the throne of the Lamb. These are not just some of those, like the 144,000, who were exclusively Jewish. But quite frankly, this is a much broader audience standing around the throne of God. Standing before the Lamb, all gathered together. You know, one of the beautiful things about traveling is when you sit down in an airport, it doesn't take long to hear other languages and see other cultures. Now, for some of us, that's unsettling. We like what we like, and we like them to sound and look like we do. But for others of us, it's a delight because it's a reminder of what heaven will be like. Can I tell you today, my friends, this is the essence of what God has planned for us. If you're one who is afraid of others, if you're one who is afraid of strangers, or you're worried about those who are not like you, you're going to hate heaven. You're going to be surrounded by them. Here's the good news. This great multitude gathered all around the throne of the Lamb is there all by the same method. Our gracious Jesus gave us this gift. Now who are these who is in this great multitude? It's the Gentiles gathered before the Lamb. Here's the good news. They're rejected by the world 
but accepted by God. These are the ones who are around the throne, who are from every tribe, tongue, and nation. They represent a great multitude that no one can number. And herein lies the diversity that God has given to us. Their song in verse 10 reflects their gratitude and their joy. Can I tell you, my friends, this is the essence of it. Let me read it for you one more time. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Rejoice with me, my friends. Rejoice with me. This is the song that we get to sing. Let's just say it out loud together and get a little bit of practice for heaven. Are you ready? We're going to just read that section aloud in verse 10. I'll start and you just join right in with me. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Woo, you're ready to go now. This is the joy that we have. It is the salvation that God brought to us through Christ, whom now we stand in his presence. Oh my goodness, friends. We rejoice in the fact that God has been good to us, that he has given us salvation, and now he is no longer the crucified Savior. He's the resurrected one, the one who sits on the throne and sits there for all eternity forward. Nobody else will amen it, I will. Because I want to tell you, this is the essence of our hope. We have none other than this. The salvation that Jesus has brought to us is his alone to offer, and it is that which he grants to us. These Gentiles, they are dressed in white and they wave palm branches. Both are symbols of victory. You know, any time that I know that I'm going to a dinner or a, a luncheon that is serving Italian food, the one thing I make sure I don't do is wear a white shirt. Because I know for sure if there's marinara sauce, if there's tomato sauce anywhere, and I'm wearing a white shirt, I'm going home with it, and not just in my stomach. I will wear it back to my office, or I'll wear it home, and people will say, I know where you've been. Wearing white is something that is challenging to keep clean, and yet here they are, dressed victoriously in white, waving palm branches. Yes, the same ones that we see at the triumphal entry, a symbol of victory, a symbol of joy. No longer are these Gentiles on the outside looking in. Now they are on the inside. God has welcomed them, and that leads them to a second joyful song. They're worshiping with a grateful song. See it in verse 12. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The essence of each of these words in verse 12 is all blessing, all glory, all wisdom, all thanksgiving, all honor, all power, all might. The highest of each of them. It is a reminder that everything we have, we owe to him. Can I tell you today, beloved family, this song reflects a deep and profound gratitude knowing what they've been saved from. I want to tell you a short story about a friend of mine. His name is Chris. Chris and I met when we were in seminary together. Chris's face was a little disfigured, but my mother raised a smarter child than to stare at someone who's a little different. And I certainly wasn't going to ask. 
And yet one day, Chris sat down with me and a few others, and he said, I suppose you guys have noticed my face is a little different. Politely, we nodded and didn't say anything more. He said, I want to tell you how it got this way. When I was 12 years old, I was kidnapped by a man who led me to believe that he had picked me up for my father. He took me out a long way from home and shot me in the face. He left me for dead, and I laid there in the ditch for hours on end. I don't know how long I laid there. When I woke up and I came to myself, I was bleeding and I knew I was in trouble. I got up and I started walking. Finally, I found somebody to help me, and they took me to a hospital. We knew who had done it. He thought he'd gotten away with it. He was arrested shortly thereafter. Friends, Chris knew what he was thankful for. Life itself. His parents knew how close they came to losing him. They were grateful for Chris's life. Here's where the story takes a weird turn. Chris is a grown man now, obviously. Not so many years ago, I saw in one of our our Baptist papers an event that I never thought I would see. The man who had shot Chris, he lived the rest of his life in prison. He was in a care center near the end of his life. The man reached out to Chris through channels and asked if Chris would come see him. Now, if it's you and I, maybe we say no. No, I don't wish to see that man ever again. He can rot in hell as far as I'm concerned. But that's not the way God wired Chris. He went and took one of his own children and sat down with this man as the man offered a word of apology. Can I tell you, my friends, Chris offered that man grace, offered him forgiveness, because Chris knew spiritually he'd been forgiven of far worse. One of the real problems that I see in the church as a whole, not just our church, but the church globally, is we've forgotten what we were saved from. In our arrogance and in our pride, we've forgotten what we were saved from. So we look down on all the others around us and we think how much better we are than them. Can I tell you today, my friends, when we get home to heaven, we will remember what we were saved from. And we will rejoice because we'll recognize just how close we came to missing it altogether. That if Jesus hadn't stepped in, if he had not acted on our behalf, friends, we would not be there. But he did. And we responded because of Jesus to his offer of grace. Rejoice with me in that today, my friends, for this is how you get to heaven. In verse 13, one of the elders comes to John and asks him a question. Who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? John answers him, I don't know, but you do. This doesn't have much to do with the overall argument of this passage, but let's be clear. He's asked a question, uh, John has asked a question that he can't answer, but God can. 
Grab this now. John is asked a question that he can't answer, but he knows who can. Sir, you know. Let's just talk for a second about the problem of unanswered questions. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've had questions that don't have answers, because every hand in the house would go up if we were honest. I will not ask you if those questions that you wanted answered you asked of God and he didn't give you the answer you wanted. Every, most every hand would go up. When we come upon these times where we face the problem of unanswered questions, we come to a moment of faith. Am I willing to trust God even if I don't know the answer? Am I willing to rest in his goodness even if the answer isn't what I want it to be? I want to tell you today, my friends, how we deal with unanswered and unanswerable questions says what we believe about God. Am I willing to put my confidence into who he is? This question that John is asked is not one for information, for the elder knows exactly who they are. He just wants John to acknowledge that he doesn't know. It's called the confession and it is a reflection on our need to confess our own inadequacy, that we need to ask God for wisdom. Now we move into verse 14, the second half, where John's question is answered. The elder says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They'll hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He'll guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These are the martyrs. Let's talk about the identity and the purpose of the martyrs. This is what is in verses 14 to 17. Let's talk about the martyrs of the great tribulation. If you're one who is a student of biblical history and a student of biblical futures, then you are, have been waiting, waiting with bated breath for this very conversation. This word tribulation, it is a word that is rich in biblical meaning, and yet it is a word that we still do not necessarily understand every aspect to it. Let's talk about the tribulation for a second because this tribulation that we're undergoing that will be ahead is exactly what Jesus warned us about in Matthew 24. Let's start with what is the tribulation and break it down slowly. It's a three and a half year period of relative peace followed by a three-and-a-half-year period of intense persecution. In Matthew 24, Jesus, in speaking in verse 21, says this, For then there will be a great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And then jumping to verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, 
and the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken. Jesus' description of the tribulation in Matthew 24 links up with Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, some 400 years earlier, describing the exact same thing. The tribulation is something that we know it's coming. How long is the tribulation? Technically speaking, it is seven years in length. According to Daniel chapter, chapter 9, the angel Gabriel proclaims the tribulation will last 70 prophetic weeks. And these 70 weeks are broken down in our understanding of what Daniel said into one day equals one year. So 70 weeks times seven years equals 490 years. The first seven weeks, 49 years, is the time to rebuild Jerusalem since the Babylonians destroyed it. The next 62 weeks, 434 years, is a time waiting for the Messiah. Most scholars agree that it was 69 weeks from the time Daniel wrote this until Jesus arrived. That last one, that 70th week, though, is the one that is of most interest to us. That last seven years. Since the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry, we've been waiting. We've been waiting for the culmination of those seven years. We've been waiting. There have been more false starts about the tribulation than you can count. More flavors than Baskin-Robbins has in their ice cream arsenal. And it is a reminder that there are a lot of things we don't know. So when does the tribulation begin? That's the question you want answered, isn't it? When the Antichrist arises, the tribulation is not far away. Okay, Darren, I get what you're saying. So who is the Antichrist? You tell me and we'll both know. How about that? In my lifetime, it has been political leaders, leaders from other nations, church leaders. I've heard more speculation about who the Antichrist is than I care to recount we don't know. Let me say that again so you hear and understand my heart on this. We don't know who the Antichrist is. If we did, we'd write a book and we'd close the debt for all of Midland, all right? Because everybody wants the answer to that question. When we identify the Antichrist, we know what to expect. We know what lies ahead. But I want to give you the good news Bad news is we don't know who the Antichrist is. The good news is we know when the tribulation comes to an end. We know. When will the tribulation come to an end? When Christ defeats the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. This, friends, is something that you can rejoice in. I want you to notice how I phrased what I've given you. When. Not if, but when. The battle is already won. We can be certain of that, my friends, 
We can be sure of it. And I want you to be free in praising God that you, when you stand in Christ, you've already won. I hear a lot of hand-wringing and hear a lot of angst in people's voices when they talk about the tribulation. They get really nervous and they get really upset and they're really worried about all that that means. And I don't blame them. There's a lot there that we can say. But this much we, don't, we can say with absolute certainty. Jesus has already won. And because he has already won, when I stand with him, I have too. These martyrs then, they are dressed in white robes and they're given a very specific purpose. They came from the tribulation. But these martyrs, they're not done. Just because they've gotten to heaven doesn't mean their point of, 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 of work is through. No, no, now they've been given a new role. It's to serve God throughout eternity. This service they will render starts with the robes that they're wearing. I want to ask you something. How can you take a robe and make it white by washing it in blood? I don't have an answer to that. But I do know this. The blood of Jesus cleanses everything. And because it cleanses everything, we receive this as a declaration of truth, even if it doesn't make sense to us. A martyr's service is anything but passive. And they'll spend their eternity serving God. Let's start and conclude our time here talking about this. They'll be serving in God's temple forever. Since Jerusalem has no temple, since it doesn't need one, so says Revelation 21, what temple shall they serve in? Simply put, where the Lamb is, there is the temple. Where the Lamb is, that's where they'll serve. Here's more good news. Their physical needs will be met. They need not wonder about things that bother us. No hunger, no thirst, no weariness from the sun. Such an existence is well beyond our capacity to understand because that's not what we're used to. Whereas they once suffered privation and want, now they suffer no more. And praise God for it. Here, friends, is the best news of all, though, and you'll find it there in verses 16 and 17. Find it in verse 17 specifically. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Would you just underline that for me? The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. How can a lamb be both a lamb and a shepherd? Those two roles are mutually exclusive. How can a lamb be both lamb and shepherd? I don't know, but I know this. In John chapter 1, verses 29 and, and verse 36, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he makes a proclamation. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This, friends, is the good news that we have, that the Lamb has come for us. And then, in John chapter 10, Jesus says this, I'm the good shepherd. 
the shepherd, the good shepherd, will provide for those who are his. Have you ever faced a time of need, time of want, a time of lacking? The good news is that the good shepherd knows what his sheep need, and he'll provide it. He'll provide it, not according to our understanding, but according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's what Philippians 4.19 says. Thus, the best news of all. Find it there at the end of verse 17. Under the shepherd's care, their sorrows are banished forever. Tribulation brings tears, but under the shepherd's care, those tears are dried. Tribulation brings stress and pain, but under the new realm, the shepherd will care for those who are his. Herein lies the fullest expression of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. These, these who have endured so much will endure no more, for they are at last and finally at home. Friends, today, I want to ask you the same question I started with. What about you? We're going to talk a lot tonight in our five at five about the tribulation and most specifically about the rapture, the return of Christ. Reality is that word is never found in the pages of Scripture and it doesn't appear in Revelation until much later, the idea of Christ's return. But let us rejoice today, my friends, that when Jesus does return, he will take those who are his home. Are you ready for that? What if Jesus returned today? Would you be prepared to spend eternity spiritually with the spiritual life you have right now? Friends, this is the day that God has given you to do something about it to choose which side you want to stand on. The side with Christ, who wins in the end, or the side who appears to be winning now. I don't know about you, but I like to win at the end. I like the idea of standing with Christ at the end, with him as my shepherd, caring for my needs for all eternity. Friends, today, this moment right here, this is the moment you get to decide. Maybe you've never decided. Maybe you've been living your life for something else. Here's the reality. Everyone trades their life for something. What are you trading yours for? Everyone trades their life for something. What are you trading yours for? I ask you that question in love because I care about you. I care about our city. And the thing that I pray for most often of all is, Lord Jesus, come quickly, but wait until such a time as we're ready. There are still people who need to come. There are still those who need to respond. Maybe you're one of them. 
If you're in this house today, here's what I want you to do. When this service is over, you don't walk, you run out into this welcome center and you find me. I'm waiting for you there. I'm hoping and praying for those who need to come and talk with me. If you're not in the building, then I want you to take out your phone and text the name Jesus to 3150092. Some of my team is waiting on the other end of that line for you to text in. Text in and let us respond back to you. This is the day God has given you to decide what you will do and how you will live. Friends, this is the calling that God has given us. We don't know when the tribulation begins. We know when it ends, but we don't know when that moment in time will come. But we know this. Our eternity is shaped by our present. What will you do with the Lamb? Will He be yours and be your great shepherd? Or will He be simply a picture on the wall? Something that you know about, but not personally. This day is the one Jesus has given you to respond to Him. Pray with me now, won't you? I'm grateful, Jesus, that you are the good shepherd. And at this moment in time that you've given us to respond to you is such that we would say, yes, Jesus, you are our shepherd. I know, Lord Jesus, there are a great many things that would pull our attention in other directions, but for this moment, Lord, would you call us to yourself? Would you do, Jesus, your work? I ask, Jesus, that you would awaken in each of us a passion for knowing you, and not just about you, but knowing you. I'm grateful, Jesus, you wanted to know us. Now, Lord Jesus, as we go from this room to Sunday school or wherever you're going to take us, let us go with the confidence that you, Lord Jesus, came looking for us. So when we respond to you, we're just responding to what you started. Do your work, Lord Jesus, and let your power be known. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.